The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. In the wake of the brutal war in Ukraine, Maria Tamarkin, Zahia Jardang, Billy Tamarkin, Anatoly Chijinsky and Olga Boychak gathered together at Antidote 2022 to respond to the tragedy with artistic works. These diverse, melancholic offerings acknowledge the difficulty, passion and beauty in pain felt not only in Ukraine, but worldwide. Hosted by Chip Rowley, this event was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in September 2022. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Chip Raleigh, head of Talks and Ideas at Sydney Opera House and the director of Antidote Festival. I would like to acknowledge on behalf of all of us speaking, singing, playing here tonight, that we're grateful to be on the land of the Gadigal people and pay, and we pay our respects to elders past and present, and all Australian First Nations people gathered here today. It is with gratitude and respect that we offer this event. As you've already seen, this evening's event is not a typical ideas festival event. It's not a panel discussion. It's not a debate. It is instead a series of offerings in song, in poetry, and in speech from five individuals attempting to convey the myriad ways the invasion of Ukraine by Russia earlier this year affected us. We began just now with Anatoly Trojinsky on the cello, extemporizing, and Anatoly, I should say, specializes in alternative styles of music, improvisation, and different types of sound production, including ponticello, harmonics, percussion, hammering, slapping, and pizzicato on his cello. In 2003, it should be recalled, he used to perform with a group called Monsieur Camembert, and he is an ARIA Award winner. He was joined by Billy Tumarkin, singing, and I will not attempt the Ukrainian here, but it's in English, Blow Wind to Ukraine, a folk melody with text by Stefan Rudansky. Billy Tumarkin is a classically trained Ukrainian, Jewish, Australian singer. She transformed songs from the past half millennia into embodied lamentations and celebrations of the present. She sings in over a dozen languages, and she's a graduate of the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music. We will hear again from them later in the program. In fact, it was when I read about a performance that Billy gave in Melbourne, it was called When Women Speak of War, that reading about that event gave me the inspiration to organize this event, and I immediately called the organizer of that event, Maria Tumargan, who is in fact Billy's mother. <laughs> we will hear later, we'll hear later from Maria, um, but I want to thank her now for her leadership on uh, doing events like this that give us another entry point into the tragedy that is happening around us, indeed man-made tragedy happening around us. And I want to thank her for helping me pull this event together. It would not have happened without her. We're extremely grateful. Today marks the 200th day since Russia invaded Ukraine. 200 days, give or take some time differences. But 200 days ago, Russia invaded Ukraine on 24 February. Of course, this is in fact, wasn't just the first time they invaded Ukraine. This was a major escalation in an ongoing war that began in 2014. But the invasion this year brought the largest refugee crisis to Europe since World War II. 7.1 million Ukrainians fled. Think about that number. It's almost a third of the Australian population. A third of the population in Ukraine were indeed displaced. It has, the effects of that war have of course had a profound effect on Ukrainians in Ukraine. But it's had an effect on all of us. I mean, in a very literal way, it's caused food shortages, it's caused energy shortages, it's caused supply line disruption, it's affected all of us with inflation around the world. And if you just think of uh, the UK, for instance, and the energy prices that they've got, it's, it's affected the whole world in very direct and myriad ways. So in that very direct way, Ukraine has changed us. It has changed Ukrainians in Ukraine, it has changed the diaspora, it has changed us all. 
But tonight's event isn't about that. Tonight's event is about how it's changed, how it's changed us in other ways. We have already seen how music can summon our feelings and emotions. And over the course of the next hour, we will see how various art forms allow us to look deeper into the ways this war has affected us. We'll see the role of, that crafts and art have played in the resistance in Ukraine on the ground, both contributing to the war effort and undermining Russian propaganda. We will hear from a poet who has been part of that resistance. We'll hear how he has captured the brutalized and heroic spirit of a people determined to survive as a people in charge of their own destiny. And we'll hear how that invasion 15,000 kilometers away has prompted a Ukrainian Jewish Australian to see her world with completely new eyes and to reach a new understanding, not only about what's happening in Ukraine, but about what happens and doesn't happen here in Australia. Our first speaker tonight is Olga Boychuk. She is a lecturer in digital cultures at the University of Sydney. She's a sociologist whose interest spans networks of narratives and cultures of activism. And so she's perfectly placed to tell us about the civilian resistance in Ukraine, including, as I hinted at before, networks who utilize craft making to help fighters and undermine Russian propaganda. Please welcome Olga Boychuk. Thank you for the introduction, Chip, and uh, thank you all for being here. It is a great pleasure to be sharing this space with you tonight. It is a great pleasure to see so many people in the audience. And I guess I will start with thanking, uh, please know that Ukrainians are extremely grateful for the acts of solidarity and support, big and small, that have been so generously offered to us uh, over the past six months of Russia's full-scale war. I think many people here have heard incredible stories of Ukrainian resistance in the face of the occupation. And I've been animated by this topic since 2014, since the start of the war, and particularly looking at the links between the peaceful everyday life and places of violent war. And my work has landed me on the list of 121 uh, Australians personally sanctioned by the Kremlin. And uh, this presentation here tonight is my personal contribution to civilian resistance. So uh, when we think of civilian resistance, I guess uh, a term that we're more comfortable and accustomed to is uh, civil resistance, which is usually broadly defined as various acts um, of nonviolent protest, be it against a law, a policy, or a government. But in the wartime Ukraine, it makes sense to talk about civilian resistance because this is really what we see happening. Uh, civilian resistance supports and complements the efforts of Ukraine military on the ground, but in fact, it does much more than that, and hopefully uh, today uh, we will look at that. Uh, so the most common and immediately recognizable form of civilian resistance is, of course, protest. This is a historical photo taken in Mariupol in 2015. Uh, this is an Independence Day celebration after Mariupol has been liberated from the Russian occupiers. And following the full-scale Russian invasion, uh, Mariupol was, and remains to be, uh, one of the worst cases of Russian atrocities. And depending on the, on the source of the estimates, uh, between 87 and 120,000 civilians have been killed by the Russian invaders. And these figures are updated daily as new bodies are discovered. And the fate of many people is unknown. Uh, some of them have been deported to Russia. 
However, uh, the, the unprecedented um, civilian resistance effort that was born in Mariupol lives on. And we can see that since, even since before the start of the full-scale war. We could see that in the eastern cities of Kharkiv and Dnipro. We could see that in the southern Ukrainian cities of Odessa, of Mykolaiv, of Kherson. We could see people protesting, and we still um, see that protest is an incredibly powerful form of civilian resistance in this war. Um, but importantly, civilian resistance takes many forms and has many faces. And so we can see this by looking at the social life of the artifacts that are crafted and used to resist. For example, here's a photo of um, tank traps in the streets of Kyiv in the early days of the invasion. Among them, someone noticed that, look, that one of them was looking a bit different, as you see here, and discovered the plaque that dated it back to World War II. So it turns out that this was an actual museum exhibit, which reminds us that in the wartime, museum curation can be a radical act of resistance. So um, does anybody know why I have pickled tomatoes on my slide? If you do, yeah, you probably heard, some of you probably heard those stories, but um, uh, essentially uh, a woman in Kyiv uh, had destroyed a Russian drone standing on her balcony and holding uh, a jar of pickled tomatoes in her hands. That was her very first encounter with a drone. She never knew what they looked like before she saw one, and she used the first object at hand to, uh, to do something. Uh, and so this also tells us that these mundane daily acts, like pickling vegetables, can be a militant form of civilian resistance. And of course, my account of civilian resistance would be incomplete without a shout out to these guys. If there are any fellows in the uh, audience, uh, I salute you. This is the North Atlantic Fellows Organization, or NAFO, uh, who are busy debunking Russian propaganda in the most creative, playful, joyful way possible. But at the same time, they're raising a lot of funds to benefit the Ukrainian armed forces on the ground. And so understanding these playful vernacular forms that are being weaponized against Russian disinformation um, is really interesting. Another interesting example is uh, the Serhi Pridula Foundation. He bought a, a crowdfunded satellite for Ukraine, which now uh, gives the Ukrainian army access to up-to-date, almost real-time radar imagery. And the most fascinating things about uh, his uh, purchase was that the median donation was less than $3. It is really a people's satellite, and said he continues to uh, raise funds for telecommunication equipment. Another extremely uh, popular form of civilian resistance is craftivism, and this is something that I wanted to talk about. So these craftivism are collective activities that challenge the geopolitical status quo by engaging in crafts. And so historically, craftivism has referred to anti-war projects that draw together links between technology, culture, capitalism, and war. However, in this instance, what's remarkable is that the artifacts that is being crafted happens to be an integral element of Ukraine's defense against the aggressor. So over the years, Camouflage netting has become a true aesthetic of Ukraine's resistance to Russian occupation. And so this here is a camouflage network that is used to conceal military equipment and personnel from being seen by the enemy from above. However, if we look from below, we will find new forms of sociality and resistance hiding in plain sight. 
What is also remarkable about this is that this is a macroscopic object, so it requires respective spaces for its creation. And right now, you can see this object being crafted at many public spaces, libraries, schools, anywhere where there's enough open space to produce it. Meet the Spiders. This is an eclectic grassroots collective driven by a common goal of saving human lives at the battlefronts. Craftivists come from all kinds of backgrounds and demographics. So some are retired, while others are children working alongside their parents. Some have successful careers. Some are unemployed, some are living in poverty. Some are known in their community, while others have been displaced. And some have always loved crafts, while others have never held scissors in their hands. There's women-led groups, but there are also men-led groups, and usually everybody just comes and joins this effort wherever this network is being, this network is being crafted. So while camouflage networks are collectively, collectively crafted uh, military and militant artifacts, camouflage scraps have their very own social life. They're sourced from discarded Ukrainian army uniforms, from humanitarian donation of, from Ukraine's strategic allies, old tactical gear, as well as, surprisingly, Soviet-era bed linens, which, as some of you may remember, came in a single color, white. So they make for a really good winter camouflage netting because uh, it helps uh, conceal uh, better. Uh, so it's interesting how we see a lot of household objects, some of them maybe once signified prosperity being repurposed for resistance. And Spider's history dates back to 2014 where, when a Kyiv woman developed a technique to craft military-grade nets from discarded military textiles because for one simple reason, because they were prohibitively expensive. So she decided she could do it on her own, and she recorded a video encouraging others to do the same. That video went viral and sparked a transnational movement, and this, as you see, they're based all over Ukraine, they're based in many countries around the world. There's over 500 collectives um, in Ukraine, it's in its neighbor countries that um, have been crafting camouflage netting, um, and I can assume that as we are here, probably hundreds, if not thousands of people are busy at work crafting these networks. So in the first year of their existence, uh, they have produced enough netting to cover a medium-sized city. And you can imagine the scale of, uh, of their production across the eight years. Uh, so this is a collage that I made to reflect on what happens when we cut and repurpose different things that we see in our daily life to resist. And so cutting and layering these scraps of the military-industrial complex onto this new plane of representation, spiders make a decolonial cut from Ukraine's Soviet past. They uh, create new solidarities, new forms of resistance in a society where trust has been systematically decimated uh, for decades. And so we can see civilian resistance as a productive act rather than one of avoidance or one of obfuscation or one of uh, oppression. Craftivists see, see crises as possibilities to uh, resist Russian imperialism and build uh, non-transactional forms of solidarity and imaginaries of peace uh, from below. So maybe the true meaning of peace is to survive by making yourself invisible to your enemy and there is something deeply symbolic in covering your land and the people on it with camouflage netting. They sometimes refer to it as lace. 
So they, may, they craft lace to protect. Uh, and so there are two definitions of a network. Um, one is a fabric structure of cords um, that, are, that uh, are crossing at different intervals um, and secured at the crossings. The other one is an interconnected group of people. And I think that networks of civilian resistance are both. And it's incredible to watch the developments in these grassroots communities. There are people who have been running for office after leading these groups. There are people who have opened their own business. There's really exciting transformations in the civil society because so many people came together um, from all kinds of demographics. And I guess I would like to end with a reflection that as we go about our daily lives, we encounter fragments of the geopolitical. And in Ukraine, uh, I guess the, it's been fascinating to watch these fragments be repurposed to craft new solidarities and imaginaries of the future. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Olga. Um, very enlightening kind of way in which um, art on the ground can play such a role both directly in resistance in a militaristic kind of way. I love pickled tomatoes being thrown to stop a drone. But also the way traditional crafts or traditional messages can be undermined um, through uh, this collective war effort and these networks of resistance. So thank you very much for sharing that reportage and analysis with us, Olga. We're going to now move to poetry, and we're going to move to the work of a particular poet who, if I can offer an opinion, um, is, uh, I think, one of the finest poets I've ever had the privilege to meet. I met him in New York City when I had the honor to present him in a festival that I was directing there in the World Voices Festival. Um, his name is Zerhi Jadan. He's going to be joining us via a video recording he just did, but I wanted to say a, a little bit of background about him to set the scene for his poetry. He's widely considered to be one of the most important writers in Ukraine right now. He's the author, of, I think most recently, of Mesopotamia and a collection of poetry called What We Live For, What We Die For. Jadam was born in Starobilsk, Luhansk Oblast in 1974, and he now lives in Kharkiv, which I think anyone reading the news will know has been a focal point of the invasion of Russia. Kharkiv is situated just 30 kilometers from the Russian border. So as uh, Zerhi tells us, um, it was the beginning of this incursion, and it will be the very end of this excur excursion. The people in Kharkiv know that this will be, that they will be a focal point till the very, very end. Zerhi is not only a poet, but of course anyone living in Kharkiv like him who cares passionately about what's happening around him, he's also a volunteer for the resistance. He has, since 2014, been running a foundation to support education and other activities in the area in which he lives. And he's also a rock star. Um, he plays in a band, the name of his band is called Jadan and Dogs. And he's currently touring around Europe. He was given permission to leave Ukraine and has uh, been touring around Europe, again, raising money for the resistance. He's a remarkable individual. He also looks a little bit like James Dean, according to some critics. But he's been called, like in the New Yorker magazine, the bard of East Ukraine for the kind of poetry that he's given us to give us insight into this area that, for the past eight years, has been the focal point of a lot of Russian aggression. So 
we had wanted to go to him live, but we obviously can't go to him live, so he very generously um, has sent a, um, a video um, with uh, poetry on it. We only got this video a couple of days ago, and unlike what we thought, we thought some of the poetry that he'd be reading and reciting for us would be stuff that was previously published. And we thought, okay, well, we could just quickly go get it, right? It's already translated to English. We can use that for it. But of course, Zerhi being Zerhi, they are brand new poems. They're poems that have never been translated to English before. And so I want to take a moment to thank Svetlana Yakovenko, who I think if anyone is a translator in the room, knows that this is an impossible task, but she translated these poems, never before translated, in 24 hours, in time for us to be able to caption the video that we're going to be playing for you. And so you're going to hear, I think very clearly, a poet's voice representing what is happening around him, what he sees is happening around him. And I think it'll take us uh, to Ukraine in a way that I think few reports in the news are able to do. He also included in the video, which we aren't going to show you, but he told me something that I want to read out to you, and then we'll go directly to the video when I'm done. He writes, Already on the morning of the 24th of February, the Russian tanks were standing on the outskirts of Kharkiv, where he lives. The Russians were convinced that they would seize the city swiftly, that Kharkiv residents would greet them with flowers. In reality, Kharkiv residents met them with machine guns, with grenade launchers, with artillery. My friends and colleagues are volunteers like me. We stayed in Kharkiv, initially to help the civilian population and to help the armed forces. We began to provide aid, humanitarian aid, volunteer aid, because the weeks, the first weeks in Kharkiv were quite difficult, as I said. The city was intensively shelled. Entire districts were destroyed. They shelled residential buildings directly. Many people lost their homes in an instant. They had to find refuge in bomb shelters, in basements, or simply live in an underground subway. Actually, in the first couple of months of this war, thousands of people lived in the Kharkiv subway. My friends and I were providing aid to them. We brought food, we brought hygiene items, we brought some warm clothes. We were evacuating people from dangerous areas. In a word, we tried to make sure that people could at least somehow feel safe and be provided with the essentials. In fact, my friends and I continue to work in Kharkiv until today. We have a whole team. Kharkiv has a large community of volunteers. These are people who are trying to help the government, trying to help the army, trying to keep the city functioning so that the city does not give up. In Kharkiv, there's a huge number of destroyed schools and universities. Many cultural institutions, such as libraries, culture centers, and so on, were destroyed. Indeed, the city is badly damaged. But, he writes, the city is alive. The city is functioning. Communal services are working, and a lot of people are working. No one is going to give up. No one is going to go anywhere. We understand that no matter how long the war lasts, this close presence of Russia to Kharkiv unfortunately means that Kharkiv will be involved in this war until the end, until the very end. We shall be under the sights of Russian missiles. It's not something that scares us. It just motivates us, and it mobilizes us, and it forces us to work harder. Ukraine cannot lose the war. If we lose the war, we will simply lose our future. We will lose the future of our children. That is why we stay where we are. That is why we do what we think is necessary to bring victory closer. 
And then he says to us, taking this opportunity, I would like to thank everyone who supports Ukraine in the fight against the occupier, in the fight against the aggressor. The support of the world is really very important to us. It is very important that Ukraine is being talked about these days, that Ukraine is being listened to these days and supported. Without the support of the world, it would be very, very difficult for us. But I think that together, we will be able to overcome this evil empire and we will be able to restore law and justice. And he concludes, understandably, these months, I have written much less than I normally do. There was not much time to write, and the circumstances, to put it mildly, are not too conducive to poetic creativity. Nevertheless, of course, he has provided, he did write three poems which we're about to hear. We'll hear them in Ukrainian, and you'll read the translation in the captions. If you're further back in the audience, there are some seats up here. I encourage you to come forward quietly if you can. Um, the, the type, you'll, you'll, you'll thank me, believe me, um, if you want to be able to read in English what he says. But I encourage people who don't speak Ukraine to also just listen to the language while you read it in English. It'll be so much more meaningful. And again, thank you, Svetlana, for making it intelligible for those of us who don't speak Ukrainian. And um, without further ado, as Zerhi writes, eventually, through all of this time, through all of this hardship, all of this volunteer activity and resistance, I was able to write the following lines. Може саме тепер і варто почати. І скільки б не переконував себе, що не час, що не слід на осліп вимовляти слова, які не закладено в голос, яких немає в книгах із минулого життя. Скільки б не захлинався порожнім, безсловесним повітрям цієї весни, пекучим, безмовним повітрям літа. А виходить, що мова сильніша за страх мовчання. Вона має заповнювати собою на грудні кишені життя. Вона має огортати місця, де збираються люди, де вони потребують говорити про себе так, щоб їх відтепер завжди впізнавали за голосом. Виходить, що мова, як березнева застуда, сиділа в наших легенях, обтяжуючих наче одяг на втікачах, що долеть уплав обморожене річище. Правдоподібно також, що позбавлені голосу, ми не стаємо чеснішими перед собою в своєму мовчанні. Так, ми відмовляємось від права співу в загальному хорі, боючись сфальшивити, боючись не попасти. І стоїть тиша за нами, Мов не засіяне поле. І стоїть німота, мов завалені камінням криниці. Може саме це, наш острах, наша зневіра. І пояснюють цю несамовиту мовчанку гірких очевидців, котрі бачили все, котрі мають свідчити, співом виказуючи убивці, голосом озиваючи право. Має вестись сівба опівнічного звуку. Має творитися марово ранкового співу. Є в цьому всьому тривога, оскільки є в цьому всьому вага.
і щось обов'язково дається взамін, коли відбирається так багато. Щось надається, наче раптовий досвід прощання. Адже звідки ти міг дізнатись про те, як обривається нитка, як зупиняється посеред часу розгублене серце? Біль. Біль і надія повертають тобі втрачене відчуття цього світу. Роблять живим згусток твого єства, надають йому сенс. Біль і надія, на які ти ніяк не очікував, про які не говорилося за родинним столом. Звідки ти міг почути цей голос лісу, сполоханого вогнем? Хто би ще міг тобі ставити зір, Налаштовувати його, ніби рояль, щоб око не хибало, пізнаючи посеред поля сутінкового звіра. Якщо вже витримав, якщо перебув божевільне балансування понад зимою, зібравши докупи страхи, мов книжки з батьківської бібліотеки, як зможеш тепер нарікати на ваготу випадку? що вивів тебе під холодне повітря історії. А отже, не смій. Не смій нарікати там, де стискаються зуби панівиченого ландшафту, де не плачуть обпалені люттю, обрамлені світлом, січені місячним світлом. Біль і надія поєднують нас серед отворів темного неба. Біль і надія Мов дві легені дівчинки-потопельниці, яких відкачали зелену ставкову воду, повернувши життя. Біль і надія, як дім, перебудований після пожежі. Лише серед цього розлому, коли відходить минуле, мов берег у темряву, лише серед огрому терпіння з'являється призмак любові до того, що робило тебе доречним цієї весни, таким зрозумілим, чітким, поставленим проти сонця, висвітленим на вітрі. Я бачив, як сонні жінки в вагоні хапаються за невидимий голос, ніби за нитку, що виведе в коридор. Я бачив, як гаснуть вогні на снаги над головами чоловіків, як діти припадають до сутені, наче до матері, як пси замовкають, побачивши сонце, що рухається над містом. Але буде це літо, ця велич обпаленої ріки, і пацани на асфальтовому футбольному майданчику, наче літери в Конституції, засвідчують рівність народжених на кордонах. Рівність і чесність людей, що з малку звикають здирати шкіру обшорсткий асфальт дворів, звикають до болю і надії, вшивають у світлі розриви тіла з густки липневого сонця. Але буде літо, і потяги, що повертаються в місто, наче рибалки, хай не вертаються без улову. Хай перевозять містами нашу надію, гірку, наче дим, наче письмо, гірку. Чекають вечора люди, схожі на рабоків, 
так гірко сплять на вокзалах, так глибоко. Ламана лінія кордону, мов соснова гілка. Дорога важка, коли несеш на спині свій дім і своє минуле. Вперті равлики беззахисної Європи. Жінки, що залишили вдома чисту постільну білизну. Діти, що не відпускають материнську руку. Як прищеплені до яблуні гілки не відпускають теплий стовбур. Ми потребуємо дива, потребуємо людяників надії, дотиків радості, променів, що пробивають темряву. Що ти візьмеш, малий равлику, вибираючись із горілого дому? Насамперед віру в те, що ти сюди неодмінно повернешся. Упокорений час шаленців і втікачів. Запекла віра тих, хто зійшов на вокзалі вигнання. Завжди пам'ятати розташування меблів у батьківському домі. Ховати в кишені ключі, як засушену квітку. Ось ця дорога, нині позначена безголосся. Ночі в ліці, подорожні, поміж дощем і тишою. Будьте мужніми, равлики, будьте гідними цієї мандрівки. Ви позбавлені дому, проте не позбавлені серця. Дуже вам дякую, друзі. Дякую. You can find more information about Zerhi Chahran's foundation and, if you like, contribute to it. The website is www.razom for Ukraine. That's R-A-Z-O-M for Ukraine.org slash projects slash Jadan, Z-H-A-D-A-N. I think um, that image of the defenseless snails of Europe um, is going to stay with me for a very long time. Our next speaker is Maria Tumarkin, who was born and raised in Kharkiv, Ukraine. She's the author of four books. She'll be no stranger to anyone here. Her fourth and latest book, Axiomatic, won the 2018 Melbourne Prize for Literature and was named a New Yorker Top 10 book of 2019. She collaborates with visual artists, musicians, and other writers. And as I said before, she was a collaborator on this event. Uh, we owe so much of this event to Maria and her imagination and her creativity and her passion about what's happening in Ukraine. And as she will tell us, what's happening for her here in Australia. Please welcome Maria Tumarkin. Thanks so much, Chip. Thanks so much for being here. I want to acknowledge that I'm talking to you about Ukraine on the unceded Gadigal country and that this piece was written on the unceded Bunwurung country in Nam, Melbourne. I pay my respects to the elders and to any First Nations people in the room tonight. In January this year, I talked to my auntie and my mom about the war. I talked to Bosnian-Australian musician Nella Trifkovic and Bosnian-Australian writer Janana Vucic about the war. I read, I read Svetlana Alexievich on the war 
I read Janine Di Giovanni on the war. I read the late Anna Politkovska on the war. The war was the Second World War. The war was the Bosnian War. The war was the war in Afghanistan, the war in Chechnya, the war in Syria. It wasn't the war that was going to start a few weeks later because that war was not going to happen, not like that. In January this year, my aunt Lena said, we had a feeling it was going to be the last war in the history of the world. When the war came to them in 1941, Lena was three and a half. Summer holidays in Dubavyazovka, Ukraine's Sumsky region. Blue skies. My nana, her sister, my auntie, my mom in her mother's womb, their cousin, now fleeing, now war refugees. In January this year, in response to Nella and Janana wanting to understand my connection to Bosnia, I spoke of being undone, reduced to dust, but what happened in the 1990s, genocide of Bosnian Muslims, herbicide of Sarajevo, rape camps, haunted too by the feeling that it could have so easily happened in Ukraine, but not now, I told them, that haunting feeling belonged to the time before. In January this year, my auntie said, there is nothing worse than war. If you went through one, you'd never let another one happen. She and I went through it again, evacuating to Uzbekistan under constant bombardments, typhus, malaria, moving to Siberia, my mom's mom sleeping in a steel wash tub on top of a kofa in someone else's flat, convinced that her husband is dead. And then back in Kiev, all schools destroyed. My auntie attending her first school year in a third evening shift. It's already dark when the school starts. No uniform, no exercise books. One textbook for three, four kids who lived close to each other. Two options of food. Bread with butter and butter with bread. My family, the lucky ones. In January this year, I quoted Alexievich's definition of homo Sovieticus to a dear friend on the phone who's here tonight. At heart, we're built for war, that's what Alexievich writes. We were always either fighting or preparing to fight. We've never known anything else. End of quote. Can't you see I said that this is the worst of our shared Soviet history? Perhaps our main task in diaspora is to dismantle our war-ready selves. My friend is from Kiev, a Ukrainian speaker from early childhood. I've been a Russian speaker all my life. Deep, she's deeply rooted in the Ukrainian culture and history. The graves of her dear ones are all in Ukraine. To her, she said, the love for her country was bound up with the readiness to defend it with her life. Why the war again? I screamed into the receiver in January this year. Why this stupid fucking readiness to sacrifice yourself? Can't we laugh? Can't we live without sticking our lives on the altar of this or that idea? In January this year, I still did not recognize the fundamental difference between what my friend and Alexievich were talking about, between quote-unquote patriotism we grew up with at fighting imperial wars of conquest and elimination, which always turned suicidal, and patriotism of defending your people and your land from fascism and occupation. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition, Monty Python. Is this right? Is the Spanish Inquisition that unimaginable? The disaster is totally here, simply not evenly distributed. I first came across this line from Ted Cole four or five years ago, and it got under my skin all right. A sense of disaster was always with me growing up in Nigeria, Cole said, a given, like air. Writing from Pakistan, Masin Hamid spoke of living in a state of perma-war. It is everywhere and never-ending, returning with renewed force whenever it seems to have begun to ebb. 
It's true, demonstrably true, that finding catastrophes unimaginable is a heck of a privilege, and yet the mind tries to slither away, or is it the soul that does? And somehow in Australia it's possible, is it possible in Australia to keep blanking out the wars being fought right now? Imagine if blackfellas didn't always live with the terror of imminent death hanging over us. That's Melissa Lukashenko, a guri writer of Bunjalung and Ukrainian Russian heritage posing this hypothetical. If Aboriginal Australia had a motto about our shared past, it might be, do mention the war. Gomeroy writer and scholar Alison Whitaker on the colonial myth of no war on the Australian soil. Whitefellas really don't get the fact that blackfellas have long been fighting wars where we're designed to lose, well, since 1788 anyways. Munanjali and South Sea Islander writer and public intellectual Chelsea Wotiger in a recent tweet. Lyudmila Khersonska, Ukrainian poet from Odessa, has a poem which starts like this. Did you know that if you hide under a blanket and pull it over your head, then for sure World War II won't happen. Instead, lie there, don't breathe, don't let your feet stick out. Or if you do, stick out, stick one out bit by bit. To those in Australia who can stop the war in Ukraine 200 days of it today from invading your days and nights, and it might be a majority, yes, at least that's the way it looks to me, I won't urge you to let this war live inside you. It's not my place to do this kind of urging because I'm not in Ukraine, I'm almost as far away from Ukraine as I can be here in Australia. But I would urge you to recognise the deep violence of calls to down the weapons, concede, retreat, assimilate, reconcile, compromise for the sake of peace, learn how to live under occupation for, for those who don't have the luxury of choosing peace. Treating the fight for survival, the fight for one's communities or a nation's right to exist and remain sovereign as willful militancy is a form of insidious violence I'm now seeing everywhere. Anti-war can mean pro-genocide. It means pro-genocide right now. The title of Lyudmila Khersonska's poem is If you know that if you hide under a blanket, Khersonska. Or try this helpful trick to stop a war. First, carefully stick one foot out, then the other, now touch the floor, lie back down, turn to one side, facing the wall, turn your back to the war. In January this year, I hated wars and what wars make of us, but now I hate blankets pulled over heads, heads facing the wall, backs to the war. By now, everyone knows that Russia's war in Ukraine has been going on for eight years. It took the full-scale invasion, Mariupol, Bucha, the daily murder of civilians in Kharkiv and Mykolaiv. It took millions displaced, thousands of children kidnapped, the number of dead that we won't know till later, but it will be in hundreds of thousands, endemic rape and torture, nuclear blackmail, gas terrorism, over 21,000 war crimes currently investigated in Ukraine for this war and its implications to the entire world to finally become undeniable. Just the other day, German Foreign Office tweets, peace, Zelensky tweets back, victory. Sometime in early, March, in early March this year, I came out at the back of the house in Melbourne where I live with my family. I was with an old friend who came to see me, a non-Ukrainian. We sat on a low bench near the lemon tree facing each other. The sky was grey. I lifted my head and saw a little patch of blue sky. I gasped. The pain of seeing blue sky was like being physically cut. The sky was the instrument of torture in Ukraine, is still the instrument of torture and death, 
and for those in bunkers and basements in occupied and or continuously bombarded parts of the country, an increasingly unreachable part of their pre-February 24th lives. We sat on a low bench in silence. I remember a feeling of not wanting to be alive. It was completely new. Since the start of the war, I would hear many people say these words to each other, say them out loud. I wish I wasn't alive to see this. And there was another new feeling too, this one voiced by citizens of the perpetrator state, my friends from Russia, who were now the ones turned to dust by horror and shame. I wish I lived long enough to see my country in its imperial form collapse, disappear, and its existence be destroyed. In Ukraine, people love Boris Johnson. I know who Boris Johnson is. I understand why so many in UK, Australia, and elsewhere see him as a despicable figure. He's earned it. And yet I cried when he was the first foreign leader to walk Khrushchev in Kiev with Zelensky. The world was dark then. No one believed in Ukraine's victory. The act of coming to Kiev in early April, it was monumental. It will not be forgotten by Ukrainian people. It might be queasy-making to imagine Johnson being regarded as a hero, but this war that's ripped apart millions of lives and families will rip some of our ideological certainties to shreds too. That's the least it can do. The fog of war, that's part of it, yes, but there is also the absolute clarity of war. Weapons are good, heavy weapons are better, the heaviest with the longest range are best of all. Worst of all are the appeasements and accommodations of any kind, because you make them with fascists who want to erase your people, your nation. As to fascism, it is made possible by two refusals. Look to Russia, Australia, don't look away. The refusal of overwhelming evidence and the refusal of overwhelming shame. What can Australians do? Remember the war. Near Kharkiv, there is a huge counter-offensive happening right now. Give money and expertise, first for victory, then for reconstruction. Don't turn your back on the wars in Australia. As Jadan said, pain and hope unite us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Um, we learn the lessons over and over again, don't we? It's a lesson of World War II that we're learning again, that peace sometimes, particularly at times like this, must take a back seat to victory. Um, thank you once again for all your help with this event. Thank you for marshalling the forces that brought us here tonight. Um, this was a humble effort to hear in Sydney, so far away from that war, to bring it home, to bring it into our hearts, to understand it a little more and to understand it in a way that only the arts can help us to do. Only writers like Maria, only researchers and um, analysts like Olga, only poets like Zerhi Jadan, and indeed only musicians like Anatoly Torchinsky and Billy Tumarkin, who invite to come back on stage, they will close out this event as we opened it in song. The first song, please, please come up while I speak. The first song, again, I won't attempt the Ukrainian, but the translation is, A Duck Swims on the Ticini River. It gained prominence over the past eight years. It's a dialogue between a son and his mother. 
the boy telling her that he's going to war and he's going to die in a strange land and strangers will bury him. This will be followed by a song um, that will be, uh, neither of these songs will um, be at all um, new to Ukrainians. Um, the song is, Oh, What a Moonlit Night, and that will close out our evening's performance. Uh, Billy and Anatoly, I will extricate myself from the stage, and uh, thank you.
Watch talks from Antidote 2022 on stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.